0: All right, welcome to this podcast with Kare Mutu, the author of Fire Makers of Azali. And my name is Mudoni Garland. And before we start, I would love you to get in touch with us on our social media handles. So please make sure you you share with us, you like us, you follow us on Facebook.com at StoryMojaAfrica, on Twitter at Storymoja. And on Instagram, at Storymoja, You can also visit our e-store, storymojaafrica.com. Kare, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. What thank you, Mudani,
1: and thank <laughs> you for inviting me here today. My name is Karungari Mutu, and I am the writer of The Five Makers of Azali, my first novel for young readers, as I say, and uh, my first attempt at writing and publishing a book.
0: Ah, well done. We always love it when we work with first-time authors, especially um, of the quality of Kare, whom we know we'll write many, many more. To kick us off today, I just wonder if you'd share a little bit about the journey to writing Fire Makers of Azali. And perhaps in order for it to have context for those who are yet to read it, you tell us what the book is about first.
1: Right. So what I'll do is I'll just read the, the blurb that's on the back of the book. Makes it easier. So the firemakers of Azali. On the night before Christmas, David and his three siblings are listening to their uncle telling traditional stories. They don't know when, but they fall asleep, and when they wake up, they're inside a story, in a land of animal kingdoms and angry ancestors, where humans vanished long ago. Befriended by a zebra and a monkey in this strange land, the four children embark on a quest to find their way home. Then David discovers that he is descended from a long-lost warrior hero who has an uncanny resemblance to the hero in his own school play. It's clear their coming was no accident. The children are forced into the impending battles between the lion clans and the leopard armies, and with a war, no weapons, and very few friends, they must unravel the secrets that link Azali to the human world before the anger of the ancestors boils over. Will they succeed in their quest? Wow. And how did, how did you develop
0: this? Where did the idea come from?
1: I, I'm not sure. I think it sort of popped into my head in little bits and pieces. I, about eight, 8, 10 years ago, I wondered if I, would, if I could write a book. And if I wrote a book, I, I knew I was going to write for younger readers, for children from about the age of 10 upwards. And it would have to be an adventure story. And somehow the characters just started forming in my mind and I it's going to be based in Kenya and Africa and somewhere, not in a city environment, but in the wilderness. So taking into account the, the beautiful landscapes that we have in this country. And then slowly the adventure sort of formed in my mind and I started writing out the original draft and putting it together, uh, which is what I presented to Story Mojia in the beginning. <laughs> Which wasn't much to look at, I think.
0: <laughs> uh, no, no, no! Don't, 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 don't you dare denigrate yourself! It is so hard to write a book. Um, it takes so much love and hard work. But I want to, I want to just ask about uh, fantasy fiction because the genre of the book, you know, is all this this fantastical world. And I always wonder about African fantasy fiction because we don't read much of it, although we do hear it in our stories, you know, in the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Because when I grew up, my grandmother used to tell us lots of stories of shapeshifters, you know, a leopard that turns into a man, that turns into, you know, a different type of creature, you know, and all that. But somehow in fantasy fiction, I don't know the, the imagination. I don't know what it is, but there's not much written. And I just wondered if you have comments, insights about, that and you know and therefore you know i'm i'm just so glad that you're feeding into that with firemakers of azali so i'd love you to share your thoughts on it
1: i agree with you that uh, fantasy fiction is not much explored in in this country or possibly in the continent and it's one it's a genre that i've always enjoyed from childhood and i still read now i still uh, look out for children's books on fantasy themes, and of course, written by Western authors and wonder, well, why couldn't we do the same thing with African stories, African characters, African context? And in a way, I also brought in, I'm a bit like you, I think I also heard the same stories or similar stories growing up of uh, folk tales and African storytelling. And there was always elements of sort of magical realism, fantasy, animal worlds interacting with humans and vice versa. And so I knew that if I create this book for children. It's going to have to bring in fantasy and it's going to bring in the African elements that we have from our tradition, from our cultures, but something that can be enjoyed beyond Kenya, beyond um, Africa, that can be read by a child around the world and loved, enjoyed, followed and understood. And I think there's a lot of room, because it hasn't been explored in, in Kenya, there's a lot of room to create those sort of stories for children, but also something that can cross over into older audiences, so to speak.
0: Right. And do you, do you think African fantasy is, or in what ways do you think it is different from, say, Western fantasy in fiction? Because you say you read quite a lot of Western fantasy. I just wonder if you have any comment about that. And this question really comes from the fact that when I'm editing a lot of stories, I can always tell if the reader reads mainly Western books because of um, there's some telltale signs. Can I share one?
1: <laughs> yes, you may. Yes, of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like when... Um, you know, when Anyango blushes, <laughs> like why is Anyango blushing? You know? She would
1: be a fair Anyango. <laughs>
0: <laughs> even if you're even the word fair just sounds like such a weird word to describe African skin. It's such a it's as if it's tinted through Western lenses. And that's why they've chosen, you know, what to see. It's a bit like if you live in a village that has never had, a, say, a flush toilet, but you keep saying, And this toilet does not flush. Then you wonder, why do you notice that in particular, you know, unless you've been, you're coming from a different world. Anyway, so my point was that a lot of, I think, our creative imagination as writers perhaps faces the challenge of being filtered through a lot of Western reading, a lot of Western media. And therefore, I don't know, crowds out perhaps what we see, actually see in front of us and we're trying to write about and what we have learned from listening to, you know, our parents' stories, our grandparents' stories, our cultural stories.
1: Right. And I think that possibly because we're not uh, used to writing through the lens of, uh, I guess the African lens, if I can call it that, as a writer, you might not realize you're actually seeing things through a Western perspective until you, somebody points out to you in writing. And that was the thing I wanted to get, make sure I had, was that authenticity when I was writing the book, especially once the adventure moves into this fantasy world where, technically speaking, there is nothing Western, there's nothing modern in where they are. They're in a kingdom of animals only. So I had to be very careful not to bring in any aspect, I mean, even to the point where I made sure any, any mention of trees or animals had to be purely African indigenous trees and animals. The only part of the book where there is some influence from the Western world is in the beginning when the children of course are based in a city in Nairobi, so we have to bring in the elements of, of the Nairobi city. But I think course because we are not in the habit of Believing maybe we don't believe that um, a purely African story can be interesting or can be read and enjoyed or understood beyond if you don't live in Africa or if you don't live in a particular country or context. But I thought to myself, well, as a child, I used to read stories from countries mm-hmm. that I still have never been to, <laughs> but I understood, I could visualize and and feel and just totally get engaged in this particular world that the author had created. So I said to myself, I'm not going to allow that to spoil. It for me where I'm restricted in terms how I describe this world and the experiences of the children in this adventure.
0: Yeah, I mean I'm feeling you, but I'm also feeling quite sad because I think there are very many um, writers who perhaps feel you know if I write something that is presume, you know, seen as African, it's going to have limited world readership, right? So they hesitate and they then add in lots of, you know, they they might add in elements that don't really help the story, but it's an attempt by the writer to make it a more inclusive, uh, bland story. Like for instance, you know, a lot of writers, I'll challenge them and I'll say, if you're in a village, why does everyone have an English name? Whereas I know in a lot of villages, you might have an English name that you use for your ID or official businesses, but uh, when you're on the farm or you're working or whatever, nobody uses it. So why wouldn't you use, um, you know, your, your local name or your indigenous name? And, um, and And a lot of writers are just hesitant because they feel somehow, let alone it won't be included, you know, in sort of seen by the world and appreciated by the world. It's also even by people of another community or, you know, there's a lot of hesitation about revealing who we really are, I guess is where I'm getting to.
1: There is hesitation. And I think we are still in our minds afraid to be totally free Mm -hmm. of of maybe Western influence and totally free of what we've been taught, um, whether it's through our education system and upbringing where only things that come from the West are acceptable or the right way to do it. But I think in storytelling, there is not necessarily a right or wrong way mm. to do it. I mean, mm. there are certain, perhaps, um, technical aspects you need to follow to make sure that the story is legible or it fits into a particular genre or age group. Mm. But beyond that, the creative aspect of it, there there's no limit to how you can tell a story. And in fact, the more ways we... Present the world of telling stories. I think the richer the world becomes in in terms of books and stories and narratives, and seeing alternative ways of looking at the world mm. beyond the lens of just the Western world. This is how it's done, and this is how it has worked for the yes. last few centuries. And, yes. and we I suppose, in this country, we're new to the the process of writing. It came, it came mm. with with colonization. Our mm. way of telling stories was oral, which has its way of being done. Now we're also learning to do it for children. In writing,
0: Yes. I mean, that's true. Although it is also true that I think there's a lot of confusion between or blurring of lines between modernization and westernization. So the fact that we are speaking English, does that make us more Western or just more modern? You know, because that's the reality of the modern life. If you want to do well in our type of world that you have to be to have a good facility with uh, English language and the same thing like in in the firemakers, in the first scenes when they're having the Christmas you know the, the, the Christmas party and and the whole setup to me just reads like modern Kenya as opposed to western uh, westernized Kenya and I think part of getting people to feel less embarrassed about who they are is just saying the behaviors we've accepted let's accept that they are now us you know so whether it's language whether it's It's uh, the things we celebrate or how we celebrate. It just becomes another way of expressing us so that when we look outside and we see what we do and we write about that, it's not constantly wondering, if I put that, does that make me less African or more African? If I put that, you
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) What will people think?
0: (laughs) Anyway, enough preaching I think about uh, you know the importance of you know seeing ourselves and accepting ourselves for who we really are. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Firemakers of Azali. What's your favorite scene in it?
1: Oof, I have so many favorite scenes most of them not in the the beginning chapters which for me was more of an introduction but in the once they get into Azali into this strange land because that's where all the excitement happens you know where else can you be chatting with zebras and monkeys and possibly be hunted down by lions and listening to the wisdom of an elephant the end which i won't give but the end towards the end there is there is a battle there's a fight and that's one of my favorite scenes i really enjoyed putting that together. And I'd say after that is uh, two or three instances where the lead character, David, is having discussions with an elephant matriarch called Malkia. And they're having discussions about, well, the land of Azali, but also deeper issues. I did enjoy writing those. They were were very calm, collected, peaceful scenes, but the interaction between two very different species, a very wise old matriarch and a young boy trying to understand himself That is also one of my favorite um, places in the book.
0: Yeah, I I have to say the contrast between the two of them and the sort of the generational, although it's crossing both, you know, the animal life and human life, but it's that sort of generational passing of wisdom. I thought it's, you know, it's, it's one of the, yeah, my favorite touches in the book. The characters themselves in the book and what inspired them. So
1: the characters, well, you have two sets of characters. You have the human characters and you have the animal characters and... With the human character, I chose to have a book where, as opposed to just one key protagonist, I wanted to have four children. Partly because I recall as a child reading books written by, well, again, Western authors where there was groups of children getting into adventures or getting into mischief and enjoying just that play and interaction between several children. And discovering themselves and discovering their world. So I thought to myself, I would like to write a book where that is that's the way it goes. The characters are definitely children and it's a it's a group of them working together. The animal characters well, you know what, we have so many animals in this country. So it was it was fairly easy for me to pick and choose from the, you know, hundreds of species we have in Kenya. Of course it would have to have key animals that you have elephants and lions, etc. And I knew that I wanted certain characters to play certain roles. So for example, the elephant is known as having wisdom and long memory. So I knew I'd have to pick that particular species of animal to represent that uh, those roles and those positions. Whereas you have carnivores like lions and leopards, which of course are hunters in their natural environment to therefore play the role of, of the higher um, hierarchies of the animal kingdom. They are at the top, they're the ones that hunt, they're the ones that set the rules of this kingdom, etc. So it was just a matter of how to interplay bring them all together and what role they play in that and then having animals that play the role of I suppose guides or helpers not necessarily particularly on the top of the hierarchy the zebra mm-hmm. and the monkey the some mm-hmm. of the lower creatures so mm-hmm. it was in my mind and in fact I had a lot more characters in my mind but I had to keep mm-hmm. in control <laughs> otherwise the poor child reader will be all over the place and so I, I, I have no lack of characters in my mind that I can think yes. of yes
0: I'm, I'm so I'm wondering. So in your writing process, do you keep a chart? Do you keep detailed profiles, you know, or, or bio, you know, put together your bio data and your character profiles for each uh, each character you have? Or how do you keep it all straight? How much planning goes into sort of the structure before you write and how much of it is just sort of organic discovering it as you're writing it?
1: To begin with, it was completely organic because I have no background in writing or creative writing, journalism, etc. I completely self-taught. So when I wrote the first draft, I just wrote what was in my head. And later on, with a bit of editorial advice, was informed, okay, this is where you need to work out this, that and the other. Went home and started doing the research myself and discovered all these things you're talking about that you (laughs) have to put together. (laughs) A bio. (laughs) And yeah. develop your characters one by one. <laughs> so I remember actually spending several months where I actually stopped the writing to just focus on building first of all building the world, mm. the the Kenyan world yes. and the animal world, mm. and building every single one of those characters that was mentioned in the book. Some more detailed than others, like David or Markia have mm. several pages on them, exactly yes. what they look like and what they like and dislike and that sort of thing. It was a journey of discovery, which I've then since learned has actually helped me, so that as I'm writing. My mind, I am keeping in track of uh, this is what this person would do or wouldn't do in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. And this is where they're likely to make a mistake or do the right thing, etc. So I, it's, it's something I learned much later, much, right. much later.
0: And so, And in that period that you're calling much, much later, did you then feel that after I've invested so much in learning about these characters and in creating this story world, now I should actually think of it as a series as opposed to a one-off. I mean, given the blood, sweat and tears that are on this page. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yes, it, I realise at some point it's going to have to be more than one book because the way I envisioned the story playing out in the long term was it would be too much to fit into one book for, for a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old child. Mm. So definitely, yes, there is. I have sort of plotted out The next uh, couple of books. Yes. And one day soon. (laughs) We'll actually start writing it.
0: (laughs) No, that's really exciting. I've been privileged to know you for for a while. And I know you work in the animal world. Um, How has that helped or not? And maybe you can, you know, for the sake of the audience who don't have the privilege of knowing you, you know, just tell, expound a bit on the animal world. Oh, okay, Your relationship to it.
1: Well, my relationship to it is, well, two ways. I, so I come from a hotel tourism background, which means just through work, I've been able to do a lot of traveling around Kenya and to different remote places on safari, taking clients and visiting different national parks. So a lot of exposure to, to the wild, the wildernesses of Kenya. And also growing up, we, my father took us quite a bit to national parks as much as he could. So we got an exposure to the wilderness of Kenya quite early, and developed just I developed a very strong enjoyment and love of that that um, that place
0: yeah, so outside of Nairobi. And hey, you are ahead. <laughs> Most of us, we see, you know, our parents would see animals that think lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <yes. laughs> That's just one of the things I'm
1: thankful for. You <laughs> bundled us into the car and made us drive into some re- strange regions of Kenya. But um, yes, yeah, so I can say I've been to a few places. So then it made it easier for me to, to imagine the various scenes and settings in the book. I didn't have to go too far. I didn't have to do too much research because I could remember sights and smells and sounds and, and what, you know, sunset looks like or the kind of noise you hear in the morning or at night. And you look at an elephant, you suddenly notice one day that, oh, my goodness, elephants have toes. Mm. Which I'd never noticed until very mm-hmm. you know a few years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. sort of details I'm then able to bring into into the book yes. and make it even more real.
0: Yes, I think it's one of the juicy things in Firemakers of Azali is just how much intimate knowledge you put across um, on the page about you know about the different animal species um, and yes, in particular the <laughs> elephant. Um, I am constantly amazed how much I'm learning about, in particular the elephant and how strong its feelings and how developed its powers of communication. So, yeah, really interesting. And I think it is something that if we could involve the next generation in, you know, I don't know, in engaging with with this mm-hmm. and learning about this and exciting them about this, then maybe our life will survive another generation or two. <laughs>
1: Hopefully. We hope it does. (laughs)
0: But speaking of which, so what do you think is the role of fiction in engaging um, children on the social issues that, that bedevil us?
1: I think you've got in a nutshell is that we need to engage children in what is happening around us in the world. What's important, important things that are happening, particularly since they're going to get exposed to them eventually anyway. At some point, whether it is um, they willingly seek them out or something comes to them and they will ask the questions and want to know and wonder. And hopefully it won't be when it's too late down the road. So, for example, whether it's something like, um, in this case, let's take the example of, of the environment so we want our children to understand what is the state of our environment? Why, sh- why should we care? What is it that we benefit from the environment over and above the beauty of the wildlife? There is a lot, it's a more complicated ecosystem and wildlife is just one aspect of it. And why we should protect and utilize the environment in a way that ensures it is um, sustainable. It's going to survive beyond your generation and the next generation. And I find that things you learn as children or you're exposed to at a very young age, you tend to value for a longer period of time. Then when you're exposed to it much later in life and you're struggling to understand this has never been part of my life where, where is this coming from and why should I care at this point point? and children's minds are a lot more open to um, accepting not, not just new ideas but I think accepting values mm. as well. Mm. So fiction plays that role in that you can present some of these maybe complex issues in a fun, engaging, easy-to-understand manner which involves other children. So they're reading about other children Mm. getting involved in a situation, whatever Mm. the situation is, and how these children interact with that situation, resolve it, or find a solution around it. Mm. And in the process of having a fun time reading, they are also learning aha uh-huh. okay so this can be done this mm-hmm. can be sorted this can be overcome and mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. we can pull together and do something
0: yeah i mean it's i mean i love that in firemakers you know the children are the change agents the children are the ones that make things happen it's not the adults it's the children who are driving you know the the whole story and and i think you know that's the one thing that fiction does is it equalizes you know um, this very unfair world where Parents, adults have all the power, and kids are supposed to just listen, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And do what they're told. And, yes. yes. And
0: yes. I don't know about other countries, but certainly in Kenya, the most common saying you hear a parent telling a child, Nita kuchapa, I will beat you, you know, <laughs> which, you know, we can laugh about. But when you think about it on another level, you're like, that is not the language that really should be, um, that a child should be raised on because I think it's intimidating, but it's and constantly reinforcing that I have power over you. So in fiction, we equalize and I think show the child you can be the hero and you you can tell adults what to do and the adults don't always get get it right they fall asleep they're old fashioned they're fuddy-duddies they <laughs> you know they make mistakes they make mistakes they mess up yeah all that you know which 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 I love in firemakers tell me a little bit about your reading um like what you've read in the past like when you were growing up a little bit about your childhood and relationship to books and therefore that how that has shaped you to become you know sort of the writer that you are
1: growing up well in uh, here in Kenya, we were you growing up in back in, well, many
0: years ago? A few. A few years ago. <laughs> a few many years ago. <laughs> what? Actually, a few lifetimes ago. A few decades ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was available to read for children back in the days before internet and ebooks and all of that was whatever was in the bookshop or the library, a lot of which was, I remember reading a lot of stories by Enid Blyton. I think a lot of people my age can relate to that. And she had an amazing collection of books and all sorts of adventures and reading other authors later on in life, for example, The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and a few other detective stories. So I always enjoyed that kind of fiction work. That's what was available. There wasn't Mm. much else from Mm. beyond Europe and the U.S., And also, I liked reading stories that came from from other countries. I remember reading, for example, the the Jungle Book series. Yes. So that that was well, gave me now the Indian some of the Indian stories and tales. Okay, mm. written by by an English Kipling, yes. Kipling writer. <laughs> but you know, it got you into this yes. a, a very different country, a different place mm. Of, mm. of tigers and mm. uh, yes, and bears, which we don't have here in Kenya. Mm. And those, I found those, those stories fascinating. Sometimes I'd even just pour over an atlas and just look at the different countries and pictures of different styles of dress and culture, and just mm. be curious about if I went to this other country, would I see these things? Yes. So those are interest in other places beyond beyond Kenya. Yes. And that interest, I think, influences me when I'm writing, I'm thinking, okay, there's a child maybe in China or in America or (laughs) somewhere else who has never been to this part of the world (laughs) who would be curious. Yes. (laughs) Who's never left. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Never left to see to come to Nairobi or even been to a game park. Mm. And they'd be curious to know about, Mm. you know, a different uh, setting, a different world, a different group of people. Mm. And that's what I want to be able to bring in to to children. um, So not just in Kenya, but from anywhere in the
0: world. So what do you say to parents who, the majority of whom I'm sad to say, are not telling their children read fiction? They're telling their children concentrate on textbooks, telling their children uh, we we have money for a great big television, but we don't have money to buy storybooks. Um, so what do you say to them?
1: Well, I say to them, if you want, yes, you can insist your child read uh, their their, do their homework and read their academic books and they need to do that need to do well in school but if you want to create a child who can think for themselves who can imagine which is the basis of creativity any kind of creativity you need to expose them to more than just what the curriculum offers because the the role of the school curriculum isn't just to teach is, is just to teach what's in what they've decided for themselves but if you want them to think beyond that and you're going to send them into a world where they're exposed to something beyond that. Books is a fantastic way of learning it and learning it slowly and building up your resilience towards sitting down and reading something for more than 10 minutes as opposed to reading a text which takes you 10 seconds.
0: Right. If
1: you don't get, you don't cultivate that skill at a young age, it becomes more and more difficult as you grow older. Yes. When they're going to have to sit down and read things that last more than 10 pages.
0: Right. So reading nurtures the attention span as well as creativity, imagination and stimulates fires, all sorts of synopsis in the brain. We're going to wrap up. But before I do, let me please remind you that we're talking to Kare Mutu, uh, the author of Firemakers of Azali, who's been talking about her stories within stories. If you read Firemakers, you know it's a story within within a story within another story. And also to remind you that uh, we will be availing this book in different formats. So you can get a physical copy. You can get it uh, and you can order it online at the Story Moja eStore, or you can get it as an audiobook coming soon. You can like us, you can follow us, you can share your thoughts with us on our social media handles Facebook.com at Story Moja Africa, on Twitter at Story Moja, on Instagram at Story Moja, and you can also visit us on our online uh, store, StoryMojaAfrica.com.
1: Hello, this is Karungari Mutu and I'm the author of The Fire of Azali and I'm going to read a short excerpt from my book and this is taken from the first chapter. This is when David, the, the main character, and his brother Moana, they've just left school after an afternoon of different holiday camp activities and they're, they've taken a shortcut through the forest on a rainy afternoon. Somebody coughed behind them, a strange rasping hack that made David's blood run cold. He swiveled round quickly. There was nobody, just the dark trunks of trees. Peering through the fence, David could see the white walls and red tile roofs of the housing estates on the other side of the river. They were so close to home, he could not bear the thought of trekking all the way back to school. Let's check the fence, said Moana. Maybe we can find where those guys came through. It occurred to him that Chokoraz must have cut a hole somewhere in the fence to enter the forest. The boys scuttled along the fence for some distance, but it seemed intact all the way. Not even a rabbit-sized hole to squeeze through. David was close to despair when Moana tapped his shoulder. Look over there, he said. They haven't finished the fence. Wiping the rain off his eyes, David gazed at a thick roll of mesh wire and a pile of poles on the ground. He grinned at Moana. They rushed back upstream. Somewhere in that hurried scuttle, David heard a squeaking noise from above. A bird, perhaps? He ignored it. Seconds later, the squeak came again. He darted a look up and was startled to see a little furry face among the leaves. Not again, thought David. Before he could make out what it was, he tripped and fell onto the slick ground. David, cried Moana, grabbing his brother's arm. But he too slipped and fell and lost hold of David.